Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jacob Barrett, and today I have the pleasure to be talking with Brad Stoddard and Craig Martin about their edited volume, Stereotyping Religion 2, Critiquing Clichés, that came out in May 2023 with Bloomsbury as part of the Critiquing Religion Discourse Culture Power Series. Brad and Craig, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Um, So... This volume, um, Stereotyping Religion 2, Critiquing Clichés, is the second volume, um, the first being just Stereotyping Religion, Critiquing Clichés. For those who are unfamiliar with the first volume, what is the Stereotyping Religion, Critiquing Clichés series? Um, how did it come to be? What are the goals of the project? How did you get involved as editors? Well, um, I guess I can start. Um, back when I was in graduate school, um, I had this idea of a book on 10 dumb ideas about religion or the encyclopedia of bad ideas about religion or something. And uh, me and my friend Donovan Schaefer and another friend, um, uh, Jeremy, who's left graduate school, he, he didn't end up staying in the, in the field. Um, we, we decided we were going to write this book on these uh, bad ideas about religion. And we wrote like two chapters and then, you know, the rest of life happened and it never saw the light of day. So uh, I thought a few years ago, well, hell, let's try that again. Um, But I don't want to write it myself this time. What if we do an edited volume? Um, And I thought, Brad's doing cool work right now. I should reach out to him. And I did. And we were like, hey, this is, this is fun. Let's do this. Uh, so it's it's a book with 10. There are 10 in the first one, right? Yeah. 10 cliches about religion um, that scholars think are either outright false or if not entirely false, deeply problematic in some way. Um, to and, and we designed it to be accessible to undergrads because we want young people <laughs> to learn that some of these stereotypes about religion are, are problematic and, and to be a real scholar, to be a true scholar means abandoning some of your common sense views when you come into the academy. I want to add one thing to correct Craig on one point. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a couple of years ago, Craig, it was literally a decade ago that you approached me. To do this. <laughs> <laughs> was it? Oh my it gosh. was because I was still, a, I was still a grad student finishing, uh, finishing up, uh, comps um so 2013 2014 wow yeah yeah and i had anyway. no idea oh so anyway. thanks for reminding me how old i am <laughs> <laughs> well that's awesome that this that the um first volume you know started well back craig you said you know back when you were in grad school and then um has had a prolonged life and now that the the second volume is out um what led to the the moment where you guys said let's let's do a second volume you know we have the 10 cliches from the first volume um but where what led you to the moment where you said you know let's do a second volume and and how do you see this new volume being different than the first one 
yeah, I got that's, the idea. That's, that's Brad's story. <laughs> yeah, I actually actually got the idea for this volume in the classroom. I taught from volume one on two occasions, and I realized uh, when I taught it the first time that there was a generational gap in terms of cliches that we were taught. Um, the Some of the cliches in volume one, when I was teaching to my students, they were learning that this was a cliche and then learning the problem with it simultaneously. They were like, you know, professor, I hadn't, I hadn't heard this before. And that, you know, surprised me because these were some cliches that, uh, you know, when Craig and I were going through the list for number one, we agreed on the cliches pretty early on because they were so prevalent. Uh, but then, you know, separated a generation or two, the, uh, my, our students, they hadn't heard these cliches. And so I remember the first time I taught from it, I asked them, well, you know, what are the cliches that are more that you, that your generation hears more of. And so they, they told me, I noted it, you know, uh, and then I taught from it again, roughly a year later and the same thing happened. And not only did they say, we don't know these cliches, but that when I asked them, what are the cliches that you're growing up with? They told me the same cliches, give or take a few words, right. That the, the previous class told me. And so realizing there was this generational gap in cliches, I thought it would be interesting to, and since, since they were pretty consistent in the cliches they were hearing, uh, I thought it would be interesting to uh, do a second volume and make it more relevant to our students. Um, so I put together a short list of cliches. I approached Craig. He took some time to think about it, decided he was on board, and volume two was born. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think it's I think that's great that you know the first volume kind of, you know works a little bit as um, the cliches that professors, you know, people in professor positions now came up with and that were kind of um, in the water that they were swimming in as they were studying and learning about religion. Um, and that now the second volume is the ones that are the cliches that the students that um, those professors are teaching or dealing with. I think that's really um, an exciting kind of combination to, to think with. Um, so in the second volume, who are the contributors? Um, I'm in the volume, and I'm fortunate to um, have a co-written chapter with um, my former professor Rita Lester in the volume, um, which is exciting because we Rita taught me the first volume, and then we taught the first volume together in a class. Um, and so now to be in the second volume is really exciting. Um, so, who are some of the other contributors? Kind of, what kinds of scholars did you want involved in this project? Um, and what are some of the topics that get covered in this in this volume? I think if I, if I can jump in here, I think broadly speaking, you know, kind of like with the first volume, we went to our friends. Uh, we wanted, you know, we were, we approached people whose scholarship we respect, and we wanted to make sure it was a diverse group of that we, that we included a diverse group of contributors. So we have um, different levels in academia. Uh, right from graduate students to fully tenured professors, um, good gender diversity, um, ethnic or racial diversity, somewhat, uh, we could have improved there. Uh, but we wanted to do a range of uh, scholars, uh, diverse group of scholars whose scholarship we appreciated. And, you know, most of them happen to be our friends, you know, these friendships that we've cultivated over the course of the years. And also people from multiple parts of the world, I'd like to add. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We we wanted to make this as it was interesting because there, there, to a certain extent, I mean, we'll get to the individual cliches, but these individual cliches really speak to this moment in American history. And we there is this poll in the volume 
uh, you know, do we double down on the U.S. aspect or do we try to expand it? And I don't, you know, the readers can decide for themselves if we did one or the other. Um, but we we recognize that this is a, or at least I think we did, that this volume really grows out of this moment in American history. And how do we make it relevant to a global audience, right? So a lot of the cliches are really about, you know, there's not going to be any surprises here. Um, a lot of them are about religion and politics. Uh, some of the cliches are about, you know, one of the cliches is all religions are against LGBTQ rights, right? That was the cliche. Uh, cliches about spirituality. I think we had a couple cl- cliches in there that address the distinction between religion and spirituality or the idea of spirituality as being superior to religion. Uh, a cliche about religion and science naturally conflicting. Again, the cliche is that religion and science naturally conflict. Uh, Cliches that address the the idea that conservative religion is inherently problematic and liberal religion is inherently better or more liberating. Anything I'm missing in there, Craig? No. uh, That's, well, I had one thought, but now it just flew out of my head. So no, you you covered it. Yeah, so, so just a, a couple other that come to my mind. Uh, the idea that re- I think was it Marty Smith who wrote the cliche "religious pluralism gives everyone a voice," and uh, we have another cliche. I think it was number ten. Uh, the tenth chapter was on uh, re- uh, analyzing the rhetoric of cults, critiquing the concept of cults. Cults are not real religions. I think was the name of the cliche. I I, I would. I kind of want to say, like, to some extent, it's the same book as the first book, right? People essentialize religion. Here's the wide variety of ways that people essentialize religion. So when you ask, you know, what's 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 this book like? I don't know. It's exactly like the last one with just different examples of people doing the exact same thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, Brad, some of the what you said earlier that a lot of these cliches touch on, you know, issues of religion and politics and specifically kind of growing out of this moment in American um, politics and kind of American culture, Um, thinking specifically about some of the um, cliches in this volume. um, So you mentioned some, so the, some of the ones in the table of contents that deal with issues of religion and politics um, and the role religion plays in making life better for some groups and worse for others. Um, I'm thinking about religious freedom is about religious freedom. All religions are against LGBTQ rights. Like you mentioned, conservative religions oppress women while liberal religions don't. Um, And then the chapter religious pluralism gives everyone a voice. Um, Why, you know, you mentioned that these cliches are the ones that, um, the cliches in this volume were were some of the ones that your students had mentioned. to you as, as being the cliches that they notice and that they um, grow up with, why do you think those are so prevalent in students today? Why do you think those are the cliches that students today know um, and are, are interested in deconstructing? Um, and then what is the importance in taking them on directly? And you know, instead of just saying, having a chapter that's religion and politics and you know, deconstructing that idea broadly, but like really tackling these specific um, examples, as Craig said, what's the importance in doing that? I, I'd like to say, I think that, um, since, since we grew up, um, the, the United States in particular has gone further left as far as what's normal, as far as social moral norms. Um, and 
young people today are far less likely to look down on gay people marrying as they did when when I was growing up. And increasingly, I think that our our young students are coming to the view that uh, religion should just be a private matter. I don't know. I don't. I don't know why they're imposing their views on other people. They should just stay in their place, right? Um, and so we get, you know, uh, uh, questions about religious freedom, right? To what extent do we allow people to be free? Uh, to what extent should they not be free to do something and rather be restricted in doing it? Um, the idea that religion and science naturally can conflict is usually designed to demean religion as superior to science and to say that um, that this is less than and therefore those guys need to keep it to themselves. Uh, I think that people, young people today, I think are just far less likely to accept those those classic moral norms and they want reasons to look down on those people they identify as religious. If, if I can add to that, I've had this conversation with my students many times, and, it, and it's typically a version of the same conversation, right? So we have the so-called culture war issues related primarily to gender, sexuality, race. And as that is happening, we have, uh, you know, studies are showing left and right that uh, church attendance is declining. And so you have a generation growing up, you know, the first generation to grow up entirely online. And what they tell me time and, and not in church, right? I mean, uh, there are exceptions to this, right? But the general trend, less church online. And this generation that's growing up online, as Craig said, is increasingly embracing uh, politically left cultural ideas about gender, race, and sexuality. And so they say, you know, Professor, the only time that we see religion is when someone's making fun of it on social media. And... <laughs> Right. right. And, you know, from that perspective, I go back and look at my Facebook or whatever, and, and it's there, right? They say, so the only time I encounter religion is when it's something that's offensive. And so we are not religious. We are woke liberals who are maybe spiritual. And uh, so th th this is the rhetoric that's been percolating literally their whole year, their whole life uh, on social media. And so by the time they get to college, uh, these are the ideas about religion and spirituality and sexuality gender, race that they're bringing with them. And so, you know, it, from that perspective, it doesn't really surprise me that these were the issues that they repeatedly addressed with me. Yeah, that's interesting to think about the way um, online youth culture, right, that in, obviously, people of all political orientations are online. Um, but the way that social media has a way of siphoning us into, um, echo chambers kind of or that like you end up only engaging with people with like thoughts you know my twitter looks probably very different than a, um someone else's twitter <laughs> um and so that students at the university who might be opting into taking religious studies classes um that their interactions with religion might be from that kind of meme culture online or from kind of more left leftist online spaces that are um i don't know challenging religions uh, like standing to deny other people rights or to um you know lean more conservative or um so yeah that's an interesting an interesting dynamic that i hadn't thought about that the that some of those cliches maybe grow out of 
the students' social context online. That's interesting. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it, uh, both Craig and I teach at small liberal, small liberal arts colleges. And so uh, the, the students that they're attracting, uh, their social media feeds are, are probably substantively different than social media feeds from students at like Bob Jones University or right. Right. And so we're, you know, I, there's probably some minor differences between the student body at where Craig teaches and where I teach. But overall, I'm going to say they're they're closer than they aren't. Something that you said earlier, Craig, um, was that in thinking about this volume next to the first volume, that it's just there, you know, I think you said, well, they're the, they're the same book, just with different examples. Um, and I think that's that's somewhat true, right? That a lot of the cliches um, that that the second volume tackles um, kind of challenge ideas about religion being discreet or static or special. Um, so I'm thinking about the chapters, each religion has an authentic, unchanging core, religion and science naturally conflict, religion is personal and not subject to government regulation, um, cults are not real religions. So why, I guess this is, a, this, a similar question to the the one I asked about politics, but um, with a different kind of umbrella that they all fall un- or fall under. Um, but why is it important to tackle each of these cliches individually instead of just having one chapter that's religion is not sui generis, or you know religion is sui generis, or religion is unique? Why is it important to kind of take each one of these assumptions to task? Um, so I would say for pedagogical reasons, um, in, in this sense, uh, for people to learn about something, they have to be able to see it, right? Here's an example. Uh, how do we persuade people through logic alone? Studies show people aren't really persuaded through logic alone. They're, they're persuaded by evidence. Nobody can see sui generis religion because our approach assumes that it doesn't freaking exist, in which case we cannot show them sui generis religion. We can only show them examples of claims about sui generis religion. If all we did was point out the abstract point about how nobody can see sui generis, there's it's abstract. There's nothing concrete to hang on that idea, but these examples make it concrete, make it available so that they can see it, right? You can't see, uh, you can't see sui generis. You can see examples of people using this rhetorical move. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And I think, um, especially with the cliches that, are in this volume around this, you know, students might not know um, what sui generis means or might not, um, like you said, you know, they might not, we, we can't show them that, but they definitely exist in a world where religion and science um, bump into each other and end up in headlines. And especially in this, um, you know, post COVID vaccines, you know, vaccine controversies and, um, challenges to science coming from certain religious groups, you know, I think that ex- that as an example, students are familiar with, or students might not know, might not know to think about religion as a um, classification or religion as a category, but, you know, they do know about cults and they've seen Netflix documentaries. And- yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, in a sense, um, 
the amount of effort, you know, as Brad described teaching the first volume, the amount of effort to explain in the beginning what we're even talking about when we're talking about sui generis religion, when these students had to learn the cliches for the first time, that adds a step to what you want to teach them. Um, oh, crap, I lost my train of thought. Um, I can dive in for a second if you want to go ahead. what you were going to say. You want me to dive in, Craig, or jump in? Uh, one, you know, talking about sui generis religion, uh, both in volume one and also in volume two, we went out of our way to make sure that we didn't put too much jargon in this. I don't know that the phrase sui generis religion appears in either volume. Now, someone's going to fact check me, and it's probably there multiple times. But we we went out of our way to avoid jargon, and uh, you know, the reason was simple. We wanted this is to be as approachable as, as humanly possible for undergraduates. We wanted an 18 year old coming into college for, for the first semester to be able to comprehend all this. And so we wanted to use, you know, very specific examples to get them interested in critical thought or method and theory. And, you know, maybe they can come back and we'll, you know, well, let's learn about sui generis religion and this discourse of, of sui generis religion. Uh, but we, we speaking about, you know, sui generis religion specifically, uh, we try to keep it as jargon free as possible. Um, and if I could revisit something you said a few minutes ago or you asked, um, you know, you're right. A lot of these chapters do overlap and or the content of them can overlap. And so one thing that Craig and I did working with the individual contributors, and I think this was the case in your in your article, where we actually put some of the contributors in touch with each other to say, okay, your the content you're writing could overlap. Let's make sure it doesn't. And so what results are 10 chapters with common themes, but standalone, so to speak. They're in dialogue with one another. That's great. That's a bonus. Uh, but every chapter has its own unique contribution. Yeah, and I think what you said Brad, about the um, accessibility of the volume, I think is really important. Um, You know, I hear a lot in different circles that I'm in about how undergraduate students um, can't do theory or that theory is too big for undergraduate students or um, we can't do deconstruction with with, in an intro level class um, that they just can't handle it. And I think um, some of that is true, but the reason is not the thoughts um, or the content, but that that it's so much of the um, work that we would assign is so jargony and is so um, dense and hard to read. Um, and so I think what these volumes um, do, and specifically this the second volume, um, is it meets the students where they're at um, without sacrificing, I think, some like pretty heavy deconstruction and pretty heavy um, critical work. Yeah. Go ahead, Craig. This relates to what I, I now remember what I was going to say, right? I don't want to spend all that upfront work of having to describe what sui generis religion is and why they should care about it when they already care about things like abortion rights, <laughs> right? Let's go straight to the example of the thing that you already, for you, right? If I talk about sui generis religion, I got to s- explain why some German dudes a hundred years ago were talking about this and how it relates to their politics that the students don't care about. They do care about abortion rights. And so it's easy for them to connect to the political work this does without having me to do the entire abstract history of our discipline. Yeah, no. And I think that, I think that's really important. Um, Were there any 
in this volume, there's 10 cliches in the first one as well. Were there any cliches as you were putting together the second volume that you had discussed, including um, and ultimately left out? Or um, if not, what other cliches do you bump into that you think um, could benefit from uh, uh, the careful dismantling um, that, that the essays in this volume do? Craig, I don't think we there, there were any that are jumping to my mind as things we left out. We, we might have folded a few together. Yeah, I I have no recollect. That's like asking me what I had for lunch uh, 60 days ago. I, I don't know. <laughs> Too long ago. I do have thoughts about like, and these are not necessarily like, hey, if we had a third volume, this would be a cliche, but just more a general thing that I think about, about cliches when I'm talking to my students. I think so many of my students, they just honestly don't understand why anybody would care about religion, right? They they cannot imagine it structuring their lives because it doesn't structure their lives, right? If they lived in the Bible Belt, their biblicism might saturate their life in really important ways. It it does not. My Catholic students, their Catholicism shapes their life in very, very few ways um, because they don't care. It's some it's like it's like, you know, if, if their mom went, had a sewing circle and made their kids go with them to do sewing and they don't really care. But I guess mom makes me do it. And sometimes it's a little bit fun and it's easier to do it than to argue with them. That's how they go to church, I think. Right. They they. They cannot imagine why anybody would take any of this seriously. And hence, they can't understand why I would take it seriously. Right? Like, why would I ever take a class on religion when it would be like taking a class on quilting? I just don't care. Um, because they have an idea in their head of what religion is. It's just dumb shit or politically bad shit. Um, and they can't get past that to see why this stuff and the study of religion actually tells us a great deal about how our social worlds function and, and in ways that matters to them. Yeah, it's interesting. They, they, we have a similar thing at McDaniel where I teach where the students, they, they can't imagine religion playing such an important role in their lives, yet they spend how much time of the day arguing against <laughs> right. other people's religions right uh, i find that interesting yeah or even in the ways you know i think what um a lot of the the cliches or a lot of the chapters in this volume do a really good job of are kind of bringing that bringing out the ways that religion is structuring our lives even when it's not directly structuring our lives right that like the ways that religion is so around us all the time and like in intertwined and so like happening in politics at the same time that it's bumping up next to science at the same time that like even in invisible ways that that religion structures our lives um and i think this this volume does a good job of of kind of pulling that out one other like not exactly a cliche that that I wish I had something written down so I could give it to my students to help them address it. And it, it's kind of, it sums up the spirit of both volumes in a way. I wanted an essay that is titled religion ought to, and that's it, right? Because that's what this is all about, right? That once the term religion acquires any kind of positive or negative association, people want 
to respond, to talk about religion in positive and negative ways, right? It's value laden for them to talk about this thing called religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and thus it manifests itself. Well, you know, the Bible says this thing and these people, they claim they view the, they claim they believe in the Bible, but they don't do that thing. And the students are, well, religion ought to be consistent. Those people ought to do what the Bible says. And I'm like, why ought they? Like that assumes so many facts for which we do not have evidence. <laughs> the idea that all religious people ought to follow their text, but but they're locked into that because they think of it in positive or negative ways, right? Maybe it's positive. Maybe it's uh, something like, well, religion ought to get that kind of respect because it's special, right? It could be positive or negative, but they're invested in it and they're not very good at thinking about the role of their investment <laughs> in in what they in, in the ought that, that they are claiming. Because for them, the ought's just in the nature of reality. It's just the nature of reality that that religion's a private matter, so they should keep it to themselves. It's just a matter of reality that that religion connects one to um, the spiritual world, so it should deserve some kind of respect, right? There ought to follow some sort of implied essence about what religion is actually like, and I don't want them to come into the class and just respond to everything they don't like with, well, religion ought to be that, or religion ought not be that. Yeah, that it's like the people, I don't know, I'm thinking not in this volume, in the first volume, but um, that religion makes people moral um, and that how (coughs) I think like our students have that idea about religion, you know, that exactly what you're saying, religion ought to um, look a certain way and that religion ought to make people moral, religion you know, should lead people to be better. And then when people misuse religion or people use religion for, for um, ill purposes, that, that that's a misuse of religion and that it's the person's fault or it's the, you know, their misunderstanding or their, um, but that there's still this assumption of something, some essence behind it that is pure and good and, well, it's, it's because it's built into their idea of what religion is, right? That they can't think of religion in other terms because that's what religion is. It's the private matter or it's the good thing. Um, if you can't abstract and realize that we choose a vocabulary for reasons and sometimes it's useful to switch our vocabulary, they can't think that if they just know, well, religion is this thing and therefore it ought to blah, blah, blah. Sorry, right now I'm just rambling, really. Uh. If I can add to that, I get kind of two takes on this issue in class. One is the idea, like what you were saying, where my students will, they get upset when people, quote unquote, misuse religion because religion is about peace and beauty and all of these cliched things. Uh, but I also get the, I'm also increasingly getting students who say religion is inherently problematic. And so you can't misuse a bad thing. And those students, right, there's always the exception, but a lot of those students who say religion is inherently a bad thing embrace spirituality as an adjunct but a corrective to religion. And I wanted to make sure that we kind of needled at those students too, which, right, to let you know that you're not off the hook because you're some woke spiritual liberal, right? 
Uh, and so we, you know, we have a few chapters in there that really problematize spirituality, uh, or at least the dominant things our students, the discourse on spirituality, right? Um, and problematize a lot of the things our students are telling themselves about their so-called enlightened spirituality. Yeah, because for, for them, right, spirituality means religion without the bullshit. <laughs> it's, I mean, and, honestly, and there's, there's the cliche for volume three. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but I want to teach them, you know, um, even if it is bullshit, that calling it bullshit has a history that we should pay attention to. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, my last question for you um, is about less about the content of the volume and more about the volume as, as a teachable resource. We talked about how accessible it is. Um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, when I was an undergrad, I was taught the first volume and then um, had the opportunity to teach the first volume um, in a world religions course. Um, and so I think the volume is, and the second volume as well, are very teachable. Um, I wanted to hear from you, how have you taught um, the volumes? Um, I guess this new one is came out um, towards the end of the most recent semester. So you might not have had the opportunity to teach this yet, but um, how did, have you taught the first one? And um, are there plans to teach the second one? Um, and what advice do you have for someone who might pick up this volume and say, you know, I do want to teach through these volumes and kind of deconstruct some of these cliches um, for my students in the classroom? I'm increasingly reluctant to teach anything that has my name on it. And so I, I don't see myself teaching from this one or from volume one anymore. Uh, but in terms of advice, um, I, th I, in the, the two times I taught volume one, well, now maybe I might be thinking myself into teaching from volume two, because when I taught volume one, even though the two times I did it, even though the students hadn't learned those cliches yet, it opened up, it generated some of the most productive student conversations I've had in class. And so I think volume two is even going to be more fruitful because it, it goes so deeply into some of the things that they hold to be so true. And so we're really problematizing that. So my advice is, I mean, if I don't know if you want to call it advice, my, my initial thoughts on this are to take your time with the cliches and make sure you go through them slowly and make sure the students know that, uh, that, any, what am I trying to say? Make sure the students know that if they repeat a cliche in the conversation, that you're going to identify that. Uh, self-reflexivity, right? Going, you know, channeling Jay-Z Smith. Um, the opportunities here for self-reflexiveness are, uh, self-reflexivity are, are numerous. And so just make sure that, you know, the conversation continues to be pedagogical. I have not taught this book. Um, and I'm very jealous of the the time I have with my students and want to assign other things to them. <laughs> I'm very particular. I assign, I assign a lot of primary texts because I want them to read primary texts. Uh, I don't use a lot of secondary texts because I want them to struggle with the primary texts. <laughs> Any advice for people teaching it? Oh, um, man, I don't think so. <laughs> no, nothing. I mean, when I think about teaching, I think what, what works for me and I don't, I, I don't know that what works for me would work for everybody. So nothing, nothing general comes to mind. Yeah. I will jump in and highlight, um, 
Brad, I think what you said about self-reflexivity is really um, true about these volumes um, that I think because there's so much about um, the, that the, that they're, the chapters are cliches about religion that we all exist in, you know, that people exist in the world with. Um, I remember from my experience teaching the first volume and I can absolutely imagine um, teaching the second volume um, and having the same, the same outcome that students were bumping into things that even if they didn't realize that that was a cliche that they had, or, you know, that they had thought about, they were, as they were reading through it and in discussion, they'd bump into um, situations or examples of like, Oh wait, my uncle said that, (laughs) you know, like, Oh wait, I, I saw that on a commercial. Um, And it led after several iterations of teaching the first volume, we did a um, kind of an autoethnography assignment where once they had read through the cliches, they, had to keep observations of places they, you know, encountered religion in the world and um, then kind of sort their observations into the different cliches to kind of understand how they were existing with it. And that it gave kind of a really fun way for students to do um, reflect like self-reflexive work um, while also maintaining kind of this critical, um, this critical lens about the world around them. So just ditto to what you said about the, the um, opportunity for self-reflexivity here. I think it's it's um, ripe with that. Um, I did have one thing that came to mind as an idea for a teaching tip. I find that the, the more hilarious your example can be, the more obvious it is what the person is doing. And, and when you can identify that, help the students idea, identify it by using the ridiculous, most absurd, but real example and name it, name the move. So like in my, in a class I teach on Jesus, um, I tell them what anachronism is, right? Anachronism is when people talk about things that are in some way out of time. Um, and we watched this video clip of, of, um, Oh, Bill O'Reilly, when Bill O'Reilly had his show and Bill O'Reilly wrote a book on Jesus that he published that I had my students read part of. And in that book, um, well, in his interview, he says, Jesus didn't like the USSR. (laughs) Like he literally said that Jesus did not like the USSR or some, I'm, I'm, I'm not twisting it. It's pretty close to something like that. And uh, they're like, that's obviously anachronism. And I'm like, now, you know what, they're never going to forget what anachronism is. And the next time they see it, the next time they see it, they're like, Oh crap, that's anachronistic. That's like what Bill O'Reilly did that dumb, dumb, right? Because it's such a hilarious example. They're not going to forget what anachronism is and it's easier for them to see it elsewhere. This is not remotely relevant to to the book, but I I did see a meme earlier today that uh, Jesus, no, the Bible was written by the best American ever, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) slightly tangentially relevant to what you were just saying craig and And true and true (laughs) true. yeah you know i think that is the perfect note to end the (laughs) conversation on (laughs) so thanks brad um well thank you both for for joining me on the podcast um and for putting together this volume 
Um, it was a joy to be here and talk to you both. Thank you. Appreciate your time.